This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 174th edition of the program. Today is Friday, January 4th of 2019, a brand new year. And before we get into our first episode of the year, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which signed up to support us just this last week. And that includes Alberto Gonzalez, David Balsam, David Morrow, Destiny Neiman, John Gear, Jordan Bernard, Maurice Carlisle, Paul Tidwell, Sherry Lotig, Steve Dustcircle, Tossin Object 2, and Virginia Blaisdell. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the program, you can visit humanistreport.com support or you can check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. And if you become a $5 member, you get to watch episodes as they are released, and you don't have to wait for individual segments to be uploaded to YouTube. So on today's episode, we've got a relatively condensed version of the Humanist Report podcast, since we're only making up for about a half a week of news stories, but nonetheless, it's a good show, hopefully. So that includes a discussion of the first week of the 116th session of Congress. It just began and we're already off to a horrible start with Nancy Pelosi pushing for Pego. We'll talk about that also. Charlie Kirk slammed Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal while clearly knowing nothing about it. We'll also talk about the 2020 presidential election by looking at Elizabeth Warren's foreign policy positions as well as what the mainstream media is already saying about her. And we'll look at an article from The Guardian that highlights key differences between both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And additionally, we'll talk Bernie 2020 yet again, and I'll share his clap back to attacks from third-way Democrats. And we'll talk about the re-emergence of establishment hack David Brock and what he has to say about Bernie Sanders supporters this time and i'll give you a hint it's not very nice so that's what we've got on the agenda for today's program uh let's get to it i hope you guys enjoy the show the 116th session of congress is upon us and as is always the case the ruling party gets to write the rules that will govern the body for the next two years now in this case democratic party leadership has proposed rules that are problematic to say the least they're downright concessions to the Republican Party. They're economically illiterate rules that will essentially kneecap the progressive agenda. So we're going to talk about the rules proposed by House Democratic Party leadership. But to give you a broad overview of these rules, Susan Davis of NPR explains that the Democratic Party's goal in opting for these rules was to theoretically eliminate causes of major instability during the previous eight years of Republican rule in Congress. Now, the rules that they're proposing in this resolution aim to do that by doing things such as reviving an old rule that automatically raises the debt ceiling. Now, this is to avert government shutdowns and make sure that the United States doesn't default on national debt. They're limiting the reach of procedural tools that make it easier to oust the House Speaker. 
But they're also doing some, I think, positive things. They're creating new ethics rules. They're requiring time before major votes in order to give lawmakers the opportunity to read the bills before voting on them. Uh, they're making members of Congress foot the bill for any sexual harassment or discrimination settlements that might come up. And for the most part, broadly speaking, that was their goal. So that's all fine and dandy. I don't really have much to say about those rules. Um, but where we start getting into some issues here is when we get to how this will impact progressives, specifically progressive policy proposals. Now, you all know about the select committee on the Green New Deal that progressives were fighting for. I mean, this is just the bare minimum thing that you can do to show to us that you care about climate change. But after blocking Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal during the holiday season, when Democrats probably assumed that no one would be paying attention, and they were correct, they are, in fact, giving us a committee on climate change after all. But there's a really big catch with it. It's virtually toothless. And as Susan Davis explains, the panel will not have subpoena power or the ability to introduce legislation, so it will not be as powerful as a similar committee created by Pelosi during the previous Democratic majority from 2007 to 2011, but the issue is expected to be a major priority for the party's progressive wing. So, I mean, <laughs> I guess it's better than nothing? Right? But I mean, there's still some questions. Will members of this committee be barred from accepting contributions from the fossil fuel industry? I mean, what really will it do? Is this anything other than just lip service to progressives? And more importantly, will the person who's been advocating for a Green New Deal the most, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, even be seated, seated on this committee? That's still an open question, but there's something a lot more nefarious in this resolution. This rules package contains a giveaway to the right, something known as PAYGO, which is essentially self-imposed austerity. It's an economically illiterate conservative rule that will kneecap anything progressives want to accomplish. Now, as The Intercept's David Dayan explains, the new rule establishes a point of order against any bill that increases the deficit within a 10-year budget window based on figures from the Congressional Budget Office. The House could attach an emergency designation to legislation to get around the PAYGO rule. Congress did this in 2009 to pass the economic stimulus package under President Barack Obama. The point of order could be waived by a majority vote of the House, but this gives the Democratic leadership another lever of control on what legislation can advance, as their assent would be critical to exempting bills from the pay-go rule. And members of Congress tend to resist voting to waive the rule, as they worry it creates ready-made attack ads. There is also a statutory pay-as-you-go act passed in 2010 under pressure from Blue Dog Democrats, which allows the president to enforce across-the-board cuts if Congress violates Pago, but the prospect of a president implementing such an unpopular policy is remote, so the House rule looms large by constraining new spending at its source. The Pago rule forces Democrats to propose tax increases that Republicans gleefully broadcast. Meanwhile, Republicans, unconcerned with deficits, get to play Santa Claus, freed from having to match tax cuts with anything unappealing. So this is all somewhat complex and convoluted, but the takeaway should be that if you want progressive policies to have any chance of passing, then you've got to oppose PAYGO. You want a Green New Deal? Well, that's going to require spending. It will require investing money into our economy, but PAYGO makes that virtually impossible. You want Medicare for all? 
Paygo makes that virtually impossible. And to remind you, this is something that Democrats are proposing. The party who is supposed to be on our side. Now, thankfully, there are people on our side in Congress that are actually fighting to stop this. Ro Khanna tweeted, I will be voting no on the rules package with Paygo. It is terrible economics. The Austerians were wrong about the Great Recession and Great Depression. At some point, politicians need to learn from mistakes and read economic history. Now, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez confirmed that she'd be the second no vote on this rule package, saying, tomorrow, I will also vote no on the rules package which is trying to slip in Pago. Pago isn't only bad economics, as Rokana explains, it's also a dark political maneuver designed to hamstring progress on healthcare and other legislation. We shouldn't hinder ourselves from the start. And that's really what it does. It hinders Democrats from the very start. But it's something that's convenient to right-wing corporate Democrats like Nancy Pelosi because she knows that now that the House is in their control, they're going to be expected to deliver on progressive policy priorities. But knowing that some of these policies would violate the interests or really conflict with the interests of the party's base and their donors, this is a convenient way to get them to not be able to pass anything. Because, oh, what's that? You guys want Medicare for all? Oh, well, we have Paygo, so um, have fun bypassing that. So she's creating this obstacle that while it isn't insurmountable, it's still a barrier to progressive policy priorities, and it's got to be defeated. So we've got two people thus far at the time I'm recording this that are pledging to vote against it, and we need a total of 18 to stop Pago. We need 18 House Democrats to vote against these rules, and only two thus far have pledged to vote against it. So we need 16 more. Now I'm expecting the usual progressives, such as Raul Grijalva, um, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar to all come out and vote against this. But at the same time, it's also incumbent on us to rally support against these rules and in favor of something that doesn't kneecap the progressive agenda. So I would encourage you to call your representative. I'm actually going to call my representative, Earl Blumenauer, and let him know that I am expecting him to vote against this new rules package that includes Pago. His number is 503-231-5413. Please don't call my representative, call your own representative, because we need people to make noise quickly, because we don't have much time to defeat this. We're sorry, you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. Okay, let me try that again. Representative Blumenauer, I just want to strongly urge you to vote against the new rules package that includes Pago 
Because if we want to have a chance at passing really bold progressive policies like a Green New Deal and Medicare for All, then we shouldn't handicap ourselves with this type of rules that hinders our own agenda. So please vote against this. I would really appreciate it. Okay, I think that took. I don't know what that was, but um, just please call your representative and tell him or her to vote against this um, because it's just... It's, it's a bad start because, I mean, if you're taking back control and there was so much momentum for progressive policy priorities in 2018, then you owe it to us to fight for those. We're not expecting anything to get passed with Republicans in control of the Senate and Donald Trump still in the White House, but for the love of God, don't make it more difficult than it already is. So please call your representative because we've got to defeat PAYGO. So I want to talk a little bit more about Elizabeth Warren's 2020 presidential campaign. You all know that I've had my fair share of criticisms of Elizabeth Warren. There are a number of issues with her. I don't necessarily think that they relate to policy, although there are some exceptions because when it comes to foreign policy, I don't like anything I've seen from her thus far. But for the most part, I'll wait until she releases a foreign policy platform to make a further judgment on that. But for the most part, when it comes to domestic policy issues, I think that she's pretty much right on point. My main criticism of her is that she lacks political courage. I still feel hurt with the fact that she refused to endorse Bernie Sanders in 2016, and she left him hanging when it really could have mattered in Massachusetts. She also said nothing when Dakota Access Pipeline protesters were being brutalized by militarized police. So I have my fair share of issues with Elizabeth Warren, and to be frank, I have my fair share of issues with all of the 20 20 candidates, including Bernie Sanders. I don't think that any one person is above criticism, and I actually think it's counterproductive and harmful if we try to prop someone up and suggest that they're above criticism. So even Bernie Sanders, I think that we should vet him and say what we agree and disagree with. I think that there's much to be desired with regard to foreign policy when it comes to Bernie as well. But with that being said, the mainstream media likes to characterize progressives as us not accepting any and all criticisms, but that's just not true because what we're against are stupid criticisms. Now, we're ringing in 2019 with very stupid criticisms of Elizabeth Warren for the number of ways that they could critique her in a substantive manner, saying, well, maybe she might not have support from progressives because she kind of burned that bridge, or maybe she needs to improve her foreign policy credentials. I think that those are criticisms that are actually legitimate. But what isn't legitimate, in my opinion, are criticisms from CNN hacks like Harry Enten, who is saying that she's a below-par candidate, when she's actually one of the best in the field now. She's a distant second with respect to Bernie Sanders, but to say that she's one of the worst, when we have people like Beto O'Rourke and Joe Biden running is just kind of offensive if you truly do claim to be a liberal. Now, what I also find to be a stupid criticism of Elizabeth Warren is Politico publishing a tweet where they basically compared her to Hillary Clinton and implied that she's as unlikable as Hillary Clinton. Yeah, is she a colossal disappointment at times? Yes, does she lack political courage? Yes, is her foreign policy problematic? Yes, is she like Hillary Clinton at all? No, I don't think that Elizabeth Warren is unlikable. 
she is someone who is actually well-liked and really built up a huge following because she's likable. Now, the question is, why is Elizabeth Warren likable? It's because of the policy positions that she's promoting when it comes to domestic policy. For the most part, for her career, she's been on the correct side of history. But unfortunately for all of us, Elizabeth Warren seems to be buying into this idea that maybe she kind of does have an unlikability problem and thinks she has to pander to us by doing Ocasio-Cortez-esque streams on Instagram where she drinks beer and just kind of hangs out. But she doesn't realize that things like this come off as disingenuous because I get it. You want to try to appear as if, you know, you're likable and you're just like one of us. You drink beer like all of us, but you don't have to do that, Elizabeth Warren. The only thing you need to do to win us over is formulate very bold policy positions. Now, we don't know too much yet about her 2020 platform, which is what matters the most. That will determine likability in my eyes. Now, what we've seen thus far is actually surprisingly good. So I'm going to talk about some of what we know of her platform. Um, but there's going to be a very, very huge caveat towards the end. Now, Jeff Stein of the Washington Post on Twitter tweeted out her key policy proposals, and that includes 40% worker control of corporations, a public option for prescription drugs, an enormous affordable housing plan, $100 billion to fight the opioid epidemic, slashing Puerto Rico's debt, new lobbyist bans, a U.S. Office of Public Integrity, Medicare for All. Other key planks worth highlighting, according to Jeff Stein, include a new federal office to prosecute crimes on Wall Street, requiring bank executives to certify that they checked and found no internal crimes, forcing big companies to disclose carbon emissions, and Glass-Steagall 2.0. Now, this is all great policy proposals. Now, because I think I'm much further to the left than Elizabeth Warren, I would go a step further. Rather than slashing Puerto Rico's debt, I just eliminate it entirely. Rather than 40% worker control of corporations, I do 60%. So by the time we negotiate, we'd get down to 50% and we have a 50-50 balance. Because if you start at 40%, if you ever achieve this, you'll get like 10%. Um, but I mean, for the most part, these are all really strong, solid policy proposals that would drastically improve the lives of everyday Americans. But it makes me feel torn when I see these policy proposals, because on one hand, just thinking about this um, strategically, I like that she's going to have an influence. Like, I want Bernie Sanders to start talking about worker control of large multinational corporations, but on the other side of that same coin, if we have two progressives running, two prominent progressives, mind you, running, well, that could split the progressive vote when I think our best chance of getting a true progressive is consolidating the progressive vote. So I'm torn on that front, but I mean, for the most part, what she's proposing here, these are great policies, but I just, it's frustrating that she doesn't think the policies are enough to carry her. She's going with that DC elitist wisdom that, oh, well, if you want to be perceived as likable, you have to go beyond the policies and you have to drink beer on Instagram. Liz, we don't care about any of that at all. Being authentic doesn't mean drinking beer on Instagram. It means just being you. That's what we care about, you. And if you stick to the policies like Bernie Sanders, then we'll like you. But I want to get to the caveat because even though I'm kind of giving her credit for all of these policy proposals, I'm going to take credit away to an extent. And we're going to kind of hark back to the criticism that I initially talked about or alluded to really at the beginning of this video that I don't think she has political courage. Because while I find all of these policy proposals absolutely remarkable, do I think Elizabeth Warren is someone that will remain committed to these policy proposals?
Well, I don't know, but given what we've seen from her, I can expect her to buckle. Now, think about this. I really want to lay out what a hypothetical progressive presidency would look like, even if we get President Bernie Sanders and he remains 100% committed to every single plank of his 2020 platform, it's still going to be incredibly difficult to get anything through. We're going to have to fight like hell to get Medicare for all tuition-free colleges, because not only will Republicans try to attack them, but we will have attacks from large multinational corporations, the industries will have corporate Democrats, blue dog Democrats trying to water it down. So if you're going to fight for these strong policy proposals, you've got to be bold and you've got to plant your feet firmly in the ground and make it clear that you're not going to budge. Bernie Sanders, even if he remains committed. It's going to be tough to get these through. But with Elizabeth Warren, my problem with her is that she's already waving the white flag with regard to some of these issues. And one of them is the most important issue to me, and that's Medicare for All. So I want to talk about an article from March of 2018 that gives us an indication that she's already preemptively surrendered to that battle. And as Yuval Rosenberg of the Fiscal Times reports, even though Elizabeth Warren co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill in 2017, well, she proposed the Consumer Health Insurance Protection Act, which essentially aims to strengthen the ACA. It's not Medicare for All. Now, is her proposal a bad proposal? No, it's an improvement. But the question is, why would you waste any political capital on something that's not Medicare for All when you know damn well that it's going to be a really huge battle to secure Medicare for All? Why would you have to gradually go from the Consumer Health Insurance Protection Act to Medicare for All? Just cut out that center policy, go for Medicare for All. But this is a sign of surrender. I don't think she sees it that way. I think she genuinely cares about Medicare for All, but she kind of saw all the backlash that Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan got, and she maybe got a little bit fearful and thought, I need to come up with something to kind of quell the fears of the industry and centrist Democrats. So here's the Consumer Health Insurance Protection Act. Liz, that is a sign of surrender, and I think that it doesn't bode well for any of her uh, any of the other items on her agenda, even if she's proposing all of these really phenomenal policies, well, if she does what we expect her to do, and that is cower in fear to the establishment and any attacks, then we can expect all of these policy proposals to get watered down to the point where they're completely unrecognizable. Again, we need someone with the utmost amount of dedication to these policies who won't budge. And Elizabeth Warren is not that person, in my opinion. So I want someone who's going to be a revolutionary. We need a political revolution, not a violent revolution, not regime change, a political revolution where perhaps the Democratic nominee is so progressive that they catalyze a party realignment and they get conservative Democrats to flee the party. Elizabeth Warren would probably try to court them back. Bernie wouldn't. So that's the difference. You know, there are some policy differences between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And the main difference that matters, I think, is the willingness to fight. And she's just shown thus far that she doesn't have the courage needed to fight. She's not a leader. She's more of a follower, in my view. And again, I love Elizabeth Warren. She went down in my book after 2016, but I still have a soft place in my heart, a soft spot in my heart, a place in my heart for Elizabeth Warren, but it's why I say she's a distant second in comparison with Bernie Sanders, or really when juxtaposed with Bernie, rather. But with that being said, you know, there are legitimate criticisms of Elizabeth Warren, as I vocalized in this video, 
but what are not legitimate criticisms are pretty much anything we've seen from the mainstream media, particularly Politico. If you're going to criticize any 2020 candidate, just stick to the policy substance, but mainstream media doesn't know how to do that, which is irritating. I really think it's the case that you can gauge just how anti-establishment a particular presidential candidate is by looking at the level of stupidity you see in the attacks ran against him in establishment outlets and pro-establishment outlets. And over the course of winter break, we got quite a bit of examples that demonstrates that Bernie Sanders still doesn't have any fans in the establishment. Now, as Ed Kilgore of the New York Intelligencer argues, Bernie Sanders has lost his 2016 mojo, and he doesn't just have one or two reasons. He has six reasons as to why he thinks this is the case. Now, additionally, Jonathan Martin and Sidney Amber of the New York Times claim that it may be hard for Bernie Sanders to hold on to that support base he cultivated in 2016. Now, in my opinion, all of this is nothing more than wishful thinking, because when you look at public opinion polls... They suggest that the opposite is true, but when I get to these media attacks of Bernie Sanders from establishment hacks and loyalists, well, I mean, we're not even scratching the surface because the intra-party battle that Bernie 2020 is catalyzing is already starting to heat up because Third Way actually already started attacking Bernie Sanders with anti-Bernie innuendo as far back as 2017, and they recently ramped up their attacks in an effort to discredit Bernie Sanders in early primary states. But what I like about Bernie Sanders is that he knows that this is all bullshit, it's just posturing by the establishment, and he decided to not take these attacks lying down, and he decided to respond. Now, you may already know what his response is, because on December 28th, he put out a fundraising email where he actually took on these attacks and hinted that, yeah, I'm going to be running for president in 2020, most likely, without actually officially announcing it. Now, as Tim Marson of Newsweek explains, Sanders' email then noted that a centrist group called Third Way, which the email dubbed as Wall Street Democrats, was already running ads against him in early primary states. They not only want to discourage or defeat a Sanders candidacy, they want to make sure that the progressive agenda is not advanced by anyone the email read. Sanders wrote, our agenda terrifies the political and financial establishment of this country, but the truth is, their agenda should terrify all of us. The message from Sanders went on to say that their agenda, funded by wealthy contributors, has led to income inequality, massive healthcare costs, and grotesque amounts of student debt. Matt Bennett, a spokesman for Third Way, claimed that the 2018 midterms showed that Sanders' approach was not the path to beat Trump. It just is not what Democratic and independent voters want, he told The Hill. So yes, it's an honor to to be included in his fundraising effort. He clearly sees us as an influential critic. In the email asking for small donations, Sanders then said that the elite in the United States would work to stop his candidacy. If that happens, the political, financial, and media elite of this country will stop at nothing to defeat us. You know that, the email read via PBS reporter Yamiche Alcindor. We've lived through it together once before. Our ideas terrify them. So what they will do is try to divide us up with attacks, some old, some new, and our political opponents will spend obscene sums of money on ads to defeat us. So I'm glad that Bernie Sanders didn't take these attacks lying down and he responded because if you just simply allow these organizations these right-wing organizations to attack you, then you're allowing them to frame the terms of the debate. You're allowing them to monopolize what Bernie 2020 will be about. And he has experience now. He knows that 
you've got to respond quickly to these attacks and nip them in the bud so that way they don't actually get any legs to them. Now, what he's saying here, this fundraising email, if you've read it, you'll see that he knows that the establishment isn't going to stop at anything. And it's very clear that blue dog Democrats, basically Republicans who are moderate, they absolutely will not allow for Bernie Sanders presidency or nominee even because they know that this is going to hurt the Democratic Party's donor base and in turn that's going to hurt their fundraising efforts. So what I hope will happen is in the event Bernie Sanders wins, in the good event uh, that hypothetically speaking Bernie Sanders becomes the Democratic Party's nominee in 2020, this catalyzes party realignment where the third way quote, third way Democrats, basically Republicans like Joe Manchin, think that him being the nominee of their party is so unacceptable, they feel as if they have no choice but to flee the party. We need these people to leave the party. They have to leave. They have to exit the Democratic Party and join Republicans because they are basically watering down what it means to be a Democrat. Because currently, when Democrats say, oh, well, Democrats are a Big Ten party, it shouldn't be the case, but it's kind of true because you have people on the right, just firmly right wing to the left in the Democratic Party. And that's just not a cohesive way of winning because when you tick that box for a Democrat, you're supposed to know what that means. But we don't know what that means. With Republicans, well, Donald Trump represents not just the party, but the base as well. And people know that that means he's going to be vehemently anti-immigrant. He's going to be in favor of deregulation. But when it comes to Democrats, if you tick the box for a Democrat, you don't really have a sense of what that means in 2019. Does that mean you're ticking the box for a conservative right-wing Democrat who will actually go along with a lot of Donald Trump's agenda? Does that mean you're ticking the box for an AOC-type Democrat? You don't know. So we need both parties to be coherent. And we have coherency on one side, and it's bad coherency with Republicans, and we have an incoherent policy platform on the Democratic Party side. Party realignment will solve this problem, and we need that to happen. But one thing that I didn't really, well, I kind of thought about this, but not seriously, but it's something that I think we should think about. And I heard about this on Chapo. Um, they talked about in the event Bernie were to become the Democratic Party's nominee, what would be the likelihood that third way Democrats or centrist Democrats try to run their own, quote, moderate Democrat as a third party challenge. And in that likely scenario, I've talked about on Twitter or questioned how many of these so-called pragmatic Democrats or centrist Democrats like Neera Tandon don't just all out rationalize voting for Donald Trump. Because when you think about it, economically speaking, they're more ideologically aligned with Donald Trump and the Republicans than Bernie Sanders. They may be disgusted by Donald Trump's social agenda, but that doesn't mean that that is going to get in the way of what really matters to them, which is economics. So how many right-wing Democrats who beat progressives over the head for these purity tests or voting third party in 2016, how many of them actually flip and vote for Trump if the third party option fails them, if they see that someone like Michael Bloomberg clearly is not viable, you know, um, it's going to be interesting. That's basically the takeaway. These attacks prove why we need Bernie, because if the establishment is afraid of him, that means that he actually is anti-establishment and we need someone 
who is going to actually shake up the establishment and not be a puppet to the establishment like Donald Trump. Because we all know he's not anti-establishment. He's only anti-establishment in the sense that he breaks norms in Washington, D.C. But policy-wise, functionally speaking, he is the establishment. So... We need Bernie Sanders, and it's going to get very, very interesting to see the attacks on him. And uh, we're going to be here to respond to each and every single one of them, because this is a fight for our lives. If we don't get someone who's truly progressive, who's bold, then I don't know what this means for not just American democracy, but the planet. So um, we're going to have to pay attention, because this is already shaping up to be a very... Um, vitriol-infused race, and he hasn't even announced yet, so expect a bombardment of attacks as soon as he announces. It's gonna be ugly. It's officially Democratic Party primary season in America, but it never really felt like it officially kicked off because we were missing one of the most prominent names in American politics, specifically the most prominent smear merchant for the Democratic Party establishment. But it's officially primary season. It's kicked off now because this individual decided to show up. And you all know exactly who I'm talking about. David Brock, who is a former Republican Party operative who made a name for himself smearing Anita Hill. And for those of you too young to remember who Anita Hill was, she came forward with allegations that Justice Clarence Thomas sexually harassed her. And David Brock is the individual that essentially led the charge to discredit her going so far as to literally write an entire book trying to discredit Anita Hill. But over the years, he had a change of heart, and he decided to switch teams. So now, rather than acting as a smear merchant for the Republican Party, he's a smear merchant for the Democratic Party. But if you think that means that he's going to be smearing Republicans... Think again, because he's still punching left. Now, in 2016, he made headlines because he announced that his super PAC, Correct the Record, would be investing a million dollars into an online troll farm that would confront Bernie Sanders supporters who dared to criticize Hillary Clinton for her abysmal record. But now that primary season is officially upon us, he's back and he's got a new hit. And this hit was published in NBC because why wouldn't you publish David Brock? A name that has no credibility whatsoever, but let's publish him. But nonetheless, they published him, and his article is titled, Bernie Sanders fans can't be allowed to poison another Democratic primary with personal attacks. Bashing Beto O'Rourke and every other Democrat doesn't help liberals' cause in 2020. It only helps Trump. Now, judging by that title, you know this is going to be a good article. <laughs> now, his argument, um, he really begins by saying that Bernie Sanders, quote, personal attacks against Hillary Clinton, in actuality just digging through her record, but his personal attacks against Hillary Clinton, that's ultimately what led to Hillary Clinton's defeat because Bernie Sanders, in exposing Hillary Clinton's own abysmal record, really laid the foundation and put up, you know, laid the groundwork for Donald Trump to attack her in 2016. Now, what he doesn't tell you is that these aren't actually personal attacks and the examples he cites 
or actually just Hillary Clinton's record. It's almost as if we were, quote, attacking Hillary Clinton because we thought that it wasn't appropriate for a conservative to lead the party that's supposed to be a left-wing party. But nonetheless, he starts out this article with a game where he puts forward a bunch of examples of quotes about Hillary Clinton that are negative, and he tells you to guess who said it. Was it Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump? So... I'm a sucker for this type of shit, so I will bite. So let's play the David Brock Quiz Game Show. So the first quote, I know the guys at Goldman Sachs. They have total, total, total control over him, just like they have total control over Hillary Clinton. Who said it? Was it Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders? Well, given that I don't think Bernie Sanders would say something like total, total, total control, I'm going to attribute that one to Donald Trump, and that would be correct. Now, the next quote here is, I don't think you are qualified if you get $15 million from Wall Street through your super PAC. Well, seeing that this made headlines when Politico decided to write an article saying Bernie Sanders says Hillary Clinton not qualified, well, I'm gonna say this one is something that Bernie Sanders said, and that would be correct. In fact, I'm, I'm ruining this because I need to let you guess before I tell you, so I'm not gonna spoil the next one. Quote, the Clintons have spent decades as insiders lining their own pockets and taking care of donors instead of the American people. It is now clear that the Clinton Foundation is the most corrupt enterprise in political history. Who said that? Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders. Well, I would initially assume that Bernie Sanders said this, given that it's a relatively coherent response, but since, you know, there was this modifier attached to the end of this statement saying, in history, who says things like this? Donald Trump. So this game is pretty easy. Quote, I think super predators was a terrible thing to say. Who said this? Donald Trump said this. So one thing that David Brock doesn't tell you is that even if Donald Trump said some of these quotes, they're still correct. Yes, I said it. Donald Trump was right about Hillary Clinton in these instances. He may be wrong about basically everything else, but this specific criticism of Hillary Clinton, it doesn't matter who said it. The truth is the truth. But since we took the time to play David Brock's game, I want him to play our games. I'm going to provide you all with a quote, just one quote, and I want you to tell me who said it. Was it David Brock or was it Donald Trump? Quote, she's a little bit nutty and a little bit slutty. Who said this about Anita Hill? Who do we attribute this quote to? Donald Trump or David Brock? Of course, it's David Brock, who, again, smeared Anita Hill and went so far as to write a book to discredit a black woman. And he also confessed that he basically made things up about Anita Hill in order to get Justice Clarence Thomas confirmed to the Supreme Court. But here's what he says about these, quote, attacks on Hillary by Bernie Sanders. Those attacks from her left laid the groundwork for copycat attacks lobbed by Donald Trump and, in the process, helped hand the Supreme Court to the right wing for a generation. Wow. The extent to which he lacks self-awareness is baffling to me. That's what you did. I'm not sure if you forgot about this or not. I know you probably want to not remember this aspect of your life, but you 
smeared Anita Hill to get Justice Clarence Thomas, a far-right justice, an extremist, on the court. So that's what you're doing. This statement is nothing more than projection. In fact, this whole article is projection because he says that Bernie Sanders supporters are the ones trying to poison the Democratic Party primary when I don't know what could be more poisonous than hiring divisive trolls to, quote, confront, more like harass, Bernie Sanders supporters who dare criticize Hillary Clinton for substantive reasons. So David Brock is someone who has absolutely no credibility whatsoever, and he shouldn't be given the time of day by anyone, but nonetheless, NBC News thought it was a good idea to publish this article from a lifelong political hack in order to scold us about not being too critical of our political opponents because he's definitely the person who should be giving us this advice, right? So we shouldn't listen to anything he has to say, but nonetheless, I'm going to go against my better judgment and hear him out because I think that it's important that we respond to the criticism he's lobbying against us here because this isn't an attack against Bernie. This is an attack against Bernie Sanders supporters. This is an attack against the grassroots, and it's disgusting. It's not as disgusting as his smear of Anita Hill, but certainly he still hasn't changed much. He's still a right-winger. It's just that he is playing for the team that's a little bit less right-wing than the extremist team. So he argues... Though the 2018 Democratic presidential primary has only just begun, those same long knives, mostly courtesy of supporters of Sanders' prospective candidacy, are out for outgoing Representative Beto O'Rourke, charging that he is not a true progressive. The reason for these preemptive attacks, which has the markings of a coordinated effort <laughs> in a spate of news and opinion articles in a variety of publications, is obvious enough. After losing the Texas Senate race to incumbent Ted Cruz, O'Rourke nonetheless has shot to the top in Democratic primary polls since Election Day, overshadowing both Sanders and another left-wing favorite, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Now, I just want to take a moment to stop right there because we have another elite from the Democratic establishment suggesting that all of these, quote, attacks of Beto O'Rourke must be a coordinated effort. Again, this is projection. This is what they do. They're the ones who coordinate attacks. So I want to get back to his argument here because he has more to say. The real problem for Sanders supporters seems to be that this Kennedy-esque golden boy, as one derided O'Rourke, seems perfectly poised to steal Sanders' thunder among millennials and white liberals with his fresh energy and personal charisma. Thus, it's not enough to disagree with O'Rourke. His persona and reputation must be dragged through the mud. Democrats should greet this early maneuvering by Sanders supporters with alarm. If Democrats cannot show such tactics, which will be used against any non-Sanders candidate because no one can get to the left of a socialist for what they are, they ignore them at their own peril. Failing to end this internecine warfare will mean that all members of the Democratic Party running for its presidential nomination will face months of minuscule ideological litmus tests turned into character assassinations. The narrative, driven by far left and lapped up by the press, will likely result in a nomination fight that could well devolve into the kind of pointless factionalism that will only help Republicans. We've seen this movie before. Sanders' assault on Clinton's progressive credentials were pernicious in large part because because they were not about policy disputes at all, but rather intended to falsely impugn Hillary's character and integrity. In 2016, I ran a pro-Hillary super PAC, which attempted to defend the candidate against false attacks, many of which came from or originated to her left. 
Though they were hardly in charge of our messaging, it was made very clear to us by our allies at our campaign headquarters that any efforts on our part to push back against the left-wing anti-Clinton brigades were unwelcome assistance. They feared alienating Sanders voters. That head-in-the-sand posture was ultimately self-defeating. Today, Democrats are rightly laser-focused on picking a winner in 2020, and the stakes are just too high to let bad-faith actors whose real aim is to smear Democrats as no different than Republicans stage inter-party schisms. If Sanders decides to run again this time, he should focus on policy and eschew character attacks on Democrats and admonish his supporters to do the same. Otherwise, they put the core values we all share at risk. So there is just so much to unpack in this garbage article. First of all, in case you missed it, it was subtle, but he actually bragged about the troll farm. He bragged about hiring trolls to confront Bernie Sanders supporters. I mean, this guy has zero self-awareness. And also, he said pretty explicitly, we were attacking Hillary Clinton because we were trying to impugn her character. We didn't care about policy, but if you go back to the videos that I did, I can't speak for everyone, but certainly most progressives, we were criticizing Hillary Clinton based on her record because it was so fucking abysmal. If you are liberal, I don't know how you can't see that Hillary Clinton is not even a liberal. She is a conservative. She voted for the Iraq War. She was against gay marriage up until 2013. She's still a warmonger. So I don't know how it's not apparent to you that any left winger would have some issues with Hillary Clinton, but this isn't necessarily about any candidate, even though he claims to care about policy here. This is about upholding the status quo because the status quo employs David Brock and upsetting the status quo, overturning the apple cart, so to speak, would not behoove David Brock. It could be disastrous for his career. Now, he says that we were wrong to critique Beto O'Rourke for a couple of reasons. Now, I didn't get to this specifically, but he says that in criticizing him for not supporting Medicare for All, we were actually wrong to do that. Now, the reason why we were wrong to do that is because Beto O'Rourke said that he'd commit to support Medicare for All if he was elected to the Senate. But the reason why we're saying he doesn't support Medicare for All is because in practice, functionally speaking, he does not support Medicare for All. He had the opportunity as a representative from Texas to co-sponsor H.R. 676, and he refused to do that. Now, he tried to play it off as, oh, well, I'm a wonk, and there are certain aspects of H.R. 676 that I find problematic but I really like Bernie Sanders' bill more. Well, the difference between H.R. 676 and Bernie Sanders' bill aren't actually that large. It's just that Bernie Sanders' bill has a more um, timed rollout. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't just... We don't pass Medicare for All and then the next year it's implemented. Bernie Sanders implements it gradually. And furthermore, if you truly do support Medicare for All, H.R. 676 is considered the gold standard by organizations that actually advocate for Medicare for All. So his his reasoning is nothing more than gaslighting. So his supposed support for Medicare for All is disingenuous. We are actually lobbing real criticisms at Beto O'Rourke. We're combing through his record, which is something you do during primary season, and you look at all of the flaws. He teamed up with Republicans on numerous occasions to attack the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He has 
a pretty iffy record overall. He's less liberal than Nancy Pelosi, for fuck's sake. So, I mean, to say that we should be alarmed if we're liberal is an understatement. But really what this is about is David Brock is trying to punish us because he's still salty about Hillary Clinton losing the election to Donald Trump. That's what this is about. And he's trying to punish the people who he thinks made Hillary Clinton lose. But Hillary Clinton lost because of Hillary Clinton. Stop trying to relitigate 2016. Regardless of why you think Hillary Clinton lost, this is 2019 and 2020 is ahead of us. So if Bernie Sanders wins the nomination, what are you going to do, David Brock? Are you going to switch teams again and go with Donald Trump? Because, I mean, you switched teams before. You're still pretty right wing. So, I mean, are you going to be able to accept that? Or will you, along with other establishment hacks, show your true cards and find some way to rationalize your support for Donald Trump in the event Bernie wins. I'd like to see how this plays out, because I think that would be interesting. But to people who think it's inappropriate for us to look at the record of presidential candidates, fuck off. I have no nice words for you. Just fuck off. Shut up. We don't have time for you. All you're doing is you're trying to stop us from vetting candidates before going up against Donald Trump. If you want to be Trump, you need someone who can build a broad coalition of support, not just from establishment hacks like you, but from progressives as well. And if you put up someone who's a corporate Democrat, you risk losing to Donald Trump in 2020, which basically secures a right-wing majority on the Supreme Court for decades to come. So shut the fuck up. Step aside. Nobody cares what you have to say, David Brock. And I'm sorry, I, you know, maybe I'm not being civil here, but I'm just, I'm out of patience for people like this who our virtue signaling about, oh, well, we care about the, you know, the Democratic Party. We just want America to choose their winner and we need to get behind the winner. No, you don't care about anything. All you're doing is what you are paid to do. You were a smear merchant for Republicans and now you're just doing your job by acting as a smear merchant for Democrats as well. Maybe in 10 years, we'll get an admission that what you were doing to Bernie Sanders was also wrong and immoral, just like you admitted that you smearing Anita Hill was unethical as well, but I don't know, because you're probably just going to find a new, a new target after that, because, you know, a smear merchant is going to do what smear merchants do best, and that's smear, and now he's trying to smear Bernie Sanders supporters, but David Brock, we don't care what you have to say, and really nobody takes you seriously, because nobody should take you seriously. Bashkar Sunkara of The Guardian wrote what I think is a fantastic piece outlining the key differences between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Now, I've tried to do this on the show. I mean, I haven't officially done it, but I've essentially alluded to the fact that I think the main difference between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders is that she lacks political courage and Bernie Sanders is a little bit less willing to back down than she is, because we all know that she sat out 2016 in terms of endorsing Bernie. She refused to come out and speak on the behalf of Dakota Access Pipeline protesters when they were being brutalized by militarized police. So I think that, you know, political courage has been the way that I characterize the key difference between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. But what Bashkar Sunkara does here is he goes a little bit more deeper and gives us a more nuanced take on why the differences between them, even if they're seemingly minimal when it comes to policy, they're still very crucial. Now, I'm going to read you a pretty substantial portion of the article, but I will link to it down below because I'm going to leave out some parts of it. But I want to get to what I think is important because I think this is a very helpful article ahead of the 2020 primary. So, Sunkara writes, 
arguing between two seemingly good choices can seem from afar like the bickering of two rival fan clubs, but there are significant differences between Warren's and Sanders' approaches to politics and what their respective victories would mean in a country desperately in need of change. To understate things, Sanders' background is unusual. He was trained in the dying remnants of the Socialist Party and cut his political teeth in trade union and civil rights organizing. His lifelong lesson? The rich were not morally confused, but rather have a vested interest in the exploitation of others. Power would have to be taken from them by force. Sanders' message from his early days in third-party politics to today has been remarkably consistent. Back in the early 1970s, he denounced the world of Richard Nixon and the millionaires and billionaires whom he represents. Even back then, he was reminding audiences this is the world of the 2% of the population that owns more than one-third of the personally held wealth in America. Warren's career started as an academic teaching at law schools and establishing herself as an expert on bankruptcy and consumer protection, believing that markets fundamentally worked but the rules of the game needed to be fairer, Warren was a registered Republican until 1995. In the six years since she won her Senate seat, Warren has established herself as a credible progressive Democrat, but her background hints at the difference between her more wonkish approach, seeking to construct better policy but not an alternative politics, and the class struggle worker-centric approach of Sanders. Not surprisingly, Warren has been keen to assure business interests that she believes that strong healthy markets are the key to a strong healthy America and that she is a capitalist. Warren does have significant support among the Netroots Nation crowd, but it's telling that she also appears to be getting traction among prominent Democratic Party policy types, Anita Dunn, Brian Fallon, John Podesta, Neera Tandon, and Matt Iglesias, among others, have had positive things to say about her in the media lately. Sanders, an outsider without ties to many prominent in the liberal politics during the Obama years, gets no such love. Now, this is a really important point to make. If establishment-minded Democrats, Democratic Party loyalists, are praising Elizabeth Warren and feel more comfortable with her, I think that that speaks volumes to the type of figure she would be. She wouldn't be a transformative figure, whereas Bernie Sanders, I believe, would be, which is something that they're aware of, and why he scares them so much. Now, Sankara brings up Matt Iglesias' support for Warren's Accountable Capitalism Act, and even though Sunkra explains that this is actually an ambitious plan, it's not perfect, and it still embodies Elizabeth Warren's pro-capitalist worldview, which kind of demonstrates how Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, they may be pretty similar when it comes to policy, functionally speaking, but their worldviews and what guides them are actually pretty different. Now, Sunkra continues, Warren's Accountable Capitalism Act relies on notions of corporate citizenship, and it's clear in her Wall Street Journal op-ed promoting the act that Warren sees neoliberalism as an ideological shift that can be corrected while retaining many of the existing parameters of capitalism. For Warren, U.S. capitalism used to be good. Corporations sought to succeed in the marketplace, but they also recognized their obligations to employees, customers, and the community. But then something changed in the 1980s. Building on work by conservative economist Milton Friedman, a new theory emerged that corporate directors had only one obligation, to maximize shareholder returns. But it wasn't a moral failing that brought about neoliberalism, but a structural shift. 
Corporations in the 1970s couldn't keep up with militant wage demands from unions, the after-effect of the OPEC oil shock and increased international competition. Profitability sagged. Without a broader ideological agenda, capital knew that it had to restructure itself and saw labor regulations and unions as impediments. Neoliberal mantras and ideology followed these developments. The only way to undo that U-turn is to rebuild the trade unions and left-wing political movements that could actually bring about a different sort of political economy, and that won't come from the politics of shared responsibility or clever policy initiatives. It'll come from the mobilization of people on the streets and in their workplaces and communities. Sanders is the only candidate that can open up those possibilities. It will be easy for Sanders supporters to spread their vision to people who feel unrepresented by establishment politics. With his relentlessly disciplined messaging, Sanders has communicated to millions exactly what he is about. It isn't corporate citizenship. It's creating a political revolution to get what's rightfully ours from millionaires and billionaires. More and more people are struggling and looking for an alternative. Medicare for All, a jobs program, tuition-free college and a living wage are all incredibly popular. In large part, this is because of Sanders and the movements he has spent his life supporting and has recently helped revitalize. Whether or not they want to call it democratic socialism, millions of Americans are ready for for a political revolution built around their needs. Elizabeth Warren is a progressive who can be an important part of a broad coalition for change, but we need a democratic socialist leading that coalition if we're to deliver it. So I think that this is an absolutely phenomenal piece here by Sankra, and he really did a good job of articulating the key differences between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Even if they may seem as if they're alike when it comes to policy, they really are different in terms of their worldviews and what you would get. Because even if it's the case that I think many progressives believe Elizabeth Warren would be a good president, well, Bernie Sanders would be a game changer. And what we need now, at a time when Americans are desperate and susceptible to radicalization, we need someone who's a game changer, who will actually give us a political revolution where we have a paradigm shift, where we get back to building up unions and not breaking them down. And getting rid of Trump alone simply won't be enough because the American public will still be susceptible to radicalization so long as we continue with this neoliberal right-wing way of thinking, economically speaking. But what I fear is that if we get another status quo politician, someone who simply puts band-aids on really huge problems, well, in a few years down the road, Americans could be just as easily swayed by a different right-wing demagogue who comes along and blames all their problems on a different group of marginalized people. And we all know that there's no shortage of right-wing extremists who could just as easily fill the role of Donald Trump. So what's needed is not just good policies, because we certainly need that, but we need a shift in the Overton window, we need a paradigm shift where we move away from freedmen and actually start talking about the ideals of someone like Professor Richard Wolff, where we get back to Keynesian economics, where we get back to FDR level of governing, where we actually have a type of political revolution where we pass policies that are so popular, rapidly so, that they can't be challenged. They can't be challenged in practice and also symbolically because 
you're basically showing that you're against the American people. That's how popular the New Deal was. Even Republicans defended the New Deal because they know that if they went against it, they'd be defeated, they'd be crushed. So we need a new FDR, and I think that what Sunkara really gets, to kind of sum it all up, uh, what he gets at is that that person is Bernie Sanders. It's not Elizabeth Warren. She's someone who's more of an Obama-type figure. Not as bad as Obama, but certainly not transformative. And we need a transformative figure if we want to not just defeat Trump, but defeat the rise of fascism and right-wing radicalism permanently. So I think it's safe to say that we're all generally familiar with Elizabeth Warren's domestic policies, but where we're still wondering where she stands is on foreign policy. Now, certainly, no matter what she proposes, I think it's safe to say that she's going to be an improvement upon Hillary Clinton. In fact, I'd say that pretty much everyone in the 2020 Democratic primary field will be an improvement from Hillary Clinton, because when you have a Democratic Party candidate that's so far to the right on foreign policy that the Republican is able to outflank them from the left, that's problematic. But nonetheless, foreign policy matters. And as a presidential candidate, I'm expecting Elizabeth Warren to lay out a very comprehensive and bold progressive foreign policy plan. Now, I've been very skeptical about what I've seen from her with what little information we have because I haven't liked anything Elizabeth Warren has done with respect to foreign policy. I mean, she voted to increase Donald Trump's already bloated military budget. She's posed for photo ops with war criminal Benjamin Netanyahu. And according to Glenn Greenwald in 2014, she kind of sounded like Netanyahu too when talking about Palestinian human rights. But also, there have been other times when she's actually gone further than other U.S. senators and called on Israel to exercise restraint when dealing with Palestinian protests. So there's some contradictions, there's some glaring issues, and we just need to know once and for all, what's her worldview, generally speaking, on foreign policy? If you can characterize your foreign policy broadly, and what a president Warren's foreign policy would look like, how would that be? Well, we finally got an answer in an interview that she gave with um, Rachel Maddow, and I was pleasantly surprised. I wanted to ask you about the president's recent decision to pull U U.S. troops out of Syria. I know that you voted against supporting Syrian rebels with arms and training. Yeah. And now that the president made this decision the way he made it, do you agree with him? So I think it is right to get our troops out of Syria. And let me add, I think it's right to get our troops out of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, I think that everybody who keeps saying, no, 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 we can't do that in the defense establishment, needs to explain what they think winning in those wars look like and where the metrics are. We're now 17 years in Afghanistan and we control, what is it, uh, that the government controls less than 60% of all the land. It doesn't have the support of the people. The heroin uh, uh, trafficking is up. There are multiple uh, groups that are terrorist groups throughout Afghanistan. Lots of different problems in Afghanistan. And what seems to be the answer from the foreign policy establishment? Stay forever. That is not a policy. We can't do that. Now, having said that, when you withdraw, you've got to withdraw as part of a plan. You've got to know what you're trying to accomplish throughout the Middle East and the pieces need to be coordinated and they need to be coordinated not just in our activities but this is why we need allies 
This is why we build alliances. Are you troubled by the nature of the president's process? Around Are the you asking decision? me whether or not I think foreign policy ought to be conducted by tweet? The answer is no, it should not. We actually need to plan this out and talk about with our allies how we ensure more safety and stability in the region. But the idea that the way we're going to do that is just to continue to keep troops and more troops forever and ever and ever in that part of the world, it's not, it is not working. And pretending that somehow in the future it is going to work by some unmeasured version of it, it's a, it's a form of fantasy that we simply can't afford to continue to engage in. That honestly was a lot better than uh, what I was expecting. It's very progressive and it's actually really common sense because she says here she wants to pull out of Syria and Afghanistan and she wants people who's against this position of bringing the troops home to explain what winning looks like. That is so important. I think that's really the quintessential question we all should be asking these pro-war democrats well if you don't want to pull out then what does winning look like to you what does that look like what does that mean when can we sufficiently say we've won now it's time to pull out and bring the troops home because if you don't actually outline what you think winning looks like then you're setting up the situation where we're just going to occupy these countries indefinitely now there's a little bit to be desired there because even if she talks about pulling out of syria and afghanistan we're still waging a drone war in multiple countries pakistan yemen somalia afghanistan libya and i want to know what she thinks about that as well because president obama initially ran as an anti-war candidate he ran against the iraq war which is really what made me support him over Hillary Clinton in 2008, but then he ramped up the drone war, more so than President Bush, and ended up killing a lot of innocent civilians, so I would like to know what she thinks there, but just minimally speaking, what, I, what I'm what i seeing from this very narrow view of foreign policy from Elizabeth Warren, I like. Now, what I appreciated her saying was that you know, staying forever is not a policy, and when it comes to the issue of permanent occupation, she says this, quote, it is not working, and pretending that somehow in the future it is going to work by some unmeasured version of it, it's a form of fantasy that we simply can't afford to continue to engage in. That is really important. So, I like where this is going. I like that she is seemingly listening to progressives on this particular issue she is acknowledging that americans are just fed up with wars we've been in afghanistan for 17 years now she also made a crucial point she says this is why we need allies this is why we need alliances now this is something that matters because i think that a lot of people who are warmongers they try to use the issue of the kurds which is important but they try to use that issue as a reason to just permanently occupy syria and this is a point that desperately needs to be made and i'm glad that she said it because look it is the case that the kurds have built up a functioning society in northern syria and I think we all want to see the Kurds succeed. We want the Kurds to be protected, but that doesn't necessarily mean the U.S. military has got to be the one to do it. We need allies, we need alliances, and we need diplomacy. Whatever happened to diplomacy? I mean, people who advocate for staying, they make it seem as if 
pulling out and just hoping Turkey doesn't harm the Kurds is our best bet, when in actuality, we have soft power at our disposal as a diplomatic tool. We can negotiate with Turkey, a NATO ally, mind you, and tell them that there will be consequences in the form of them losing weapons deals or us cutting off diplomatic ties with them if they harm the Kurds. If we need to, we can threaten them with sanctions and ice them out economically. I mean, we don't have to do that, but we can at least threaten them at a minimum to make sure that they leave the Kurds alone. We can show strength as a means of protecting the Kurds without actually using our military and occupying other countries indefinitely. But the problem is that nobody talks about foreign policy in this way because the military-industrial complex wants you to think that the only way we're able to protect marginalized groups around the world is by using the military. The military is the only option. It's the military or nothing when you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. There are more options under your tool, tool belt when it comes to diplomacy that you can use. And in a perfect world, in an ideal scenario, you know, as someone who's a humanist, I would be using the military to stop humanitarian disasters. I would want to intervene in Myanmar to stop the genocide of Rohingya Muslims. But since I don't trust the American military, I think that it's important that our leaders publicly, publicly condemn the actions taken by the government in Myanmar against the Rohingya. I want them to condemn and use diplomacy as a tool to stop atrocities from happening around the world, but they don't just not speak out oftentimes, they actually support atrocities happening. I mean, look at the situation in Yemen. We can barely get lawmakers to agree to stop supporting Saudi Arabia as they carry out a genocide, so I just want people to stop buying into this notion that a humanitarian war is a thing because war is always going to lead to devastation and U.S. participation in said wars is often way worse. Nine times out of ten, it makes matters worse. It exacerbates the issue and something that is never mentioned, which credit to Kyle Kalinske of Secular Talk, he's probably the only person or one of few people that mentioned this, is that the problem with Syria is that on one hand, you don't like Assad but you don't like ISIS, but they're fighting each other. But I mean, if you want to protect the Kurds, then use diplomacy to try to protect the Kurds. Use diplomacy to try to ameliorate atrocities, but just occupying other countries is not the answer. And I think that that's the takeaway I got from Elizabeth Warren here. So this is a really great start with regard to her foreign policy, but I absolutely need to know her stance on the drone wars because if she is going to try, and I don't think she would say this, to be fair, if she's going to try to say, well, you know, we've, we've got to continue on with the drone war because we've got to fight terrorism, I would disagree with that because we're creating more terrorists, we're bombing civilians, and we're radicalizing them because wouldn't you be radicalized if the U.S. killed your family, arbitrarily so, when they weren't associated with terrorists? Of course. So we're making matters worse. So I like that she is supporting this progressive foreign policy idea that occupation that is permanent obviously is not working. This is a good start, but I want to see more. I want to see a thorough uh, foreign policy plan from her. And to be fair to Elizabeth Warren, I don't want to just be you know, harsh on her. Bernie Sanders has a lot of issues with foreign policy. He's still the best in the country by far and away, but he's still leaves a lot to be desired. So I'd like to see the two main progressive presidential candidates really come out swinging with, you know, a progressive foreign policy platform. But this is certainly 
a great start for Elizabeth Warren, and I'll, I'll give her credit where it's due. So we've talked extensively about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal on this program, and she's fighting for this to make sure that people her age and my age and Charlie Kirk's age will have a little bit less of a hellish life when we are older, when we're in our golden years, because we already know that we're going to have to face the reality of climate change, but a Green New Deal would stop the worst of what climate change has to offer. It would possibly stop an utter climate catastrophe. However, since Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is in support of a Green New Deal, well then, by default, Charlie Kirk of Turning Point USA has to be against it. Now, he went on Fox News to vocalize his opposition to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal, and throughout the course of this segment, you're going to see that he's opposed to it because he clearly has no idea what the Green New Deal entails. The socialist from the Bronx, the mm-hmm. color Ocasio-Cortez, she has a Green New Deal that would eliminate much of the United States' fossil fuel consumption, close coal and natural power plants, and destroy hundreds of thousands of jobs. Your take on her new Green New Deal. Well, look, uh, my my favorite thing with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, we have gone back and forth on social media, and we're actually within a couple years of each other. So we're both fighting for two very different visions of what our generation is going to look like, either embracing radical socialist ideas or re-embracing free enterprise, constitutional limited uh, government ideas. But look, this is going to spend trillions of dollars that we don't have over a couple decades. It would would totally destroy the coal and fossil fuel industry. And with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she's constantly Wrong, but never in doubt. She's walking the halls of Congress uh, trying to get people to sign up for this thing. But again, it's only going to further disenfranchise middle America to the Democrat Party. But she's definitely catering to the elites, uh, the, to the elites in Malibu and Manhattan. But she's going to lose Missouri, Indiana, in the middle of the part of country talking about uh, eliminating hundreds of thousands of jobs, rise, raising utility costs and spending trillions of dollars we do not have. Yeah, he doesn't know what the Green New Deal is. In fact, he didn't even bother to look before going on Fox News. Now, I don't know if he anticipated that he would get a question about the Green New Deal, but either way, if you're going to attack someone or even speak about this issue, then you should at least be somewhat knowledgeable about what a Green New Deal is. He didn't even do a quick five-minute Google search before talking about it. He says, this is going to spend trillions of dollars that we don't have over a couple of decades. Okay, so by saying that, he's indicating that he is fiscally conservative. That's a reasonable position to have. So he's consistent, right? He's against Donald Trump's tax plan, right? Wrong. The, the, de- the deregulation has been amazing. The tax cut has been phenomenal. The VA Choice Act, the right to try, all that is just really important stuff. So do you understand what's happening here? We actually do have trillions of dollars. It's only for the policies that Charlie Kirk wants. Specifically, the policies that donors to Turning Point USA want. Rich, right-wing billionaires who absolutely lobbied for this tax cut that they got. Now, he also talks about how it would make fossil fuel jobs and uh, jobs within the coal industry obsolete. But the problem is that if you're going to live your life like a capitalist every single day, Charlie, then you should at least have a basic understanding as to how the market functions. A free market means that if there's a new competitor that emerges and is better than an old industry, then it's going to put that industry and companies out of business. Currently, we're seeing the landline industry go out of business. 
landline phone manufacturers are currently probably terrified because cell phones have taken over. Are you going to cry for them and beg the government to step in and subsidize them? Would you have cried for the horse and buggy industry as they freaked out over the invention of cars? No, this is the way that the free market functions. Coal is going obsolete because newer, clean technology like hydro, wind, and solar is better. But presumably, since this will lead to an industry dying, well, then it's just inherently evil. That's how capitalism works. You're a capitalist, are you not? That's the way that the free market works. The free market chooses winners and losers. Fossil fuel and coal are losers to hydro, solar, and wind. He also says here that it's only going to further disenfranchise middle America to the Democratic Party, which he's definitely catering to the elites in Malibu and Manhattan, but she's going to lose Missouri, Indiana, and the middle part of the country, talking about eliminating hundreds of thousands of jobs, raising utility costs, and spending trillions of dollars we don't have. First and foremost, she's not proposing that we raise utility costs. If you had checked up on what the Green New Deal was, you'd see that it's not about shifting the burden of climate change to the working class. That's not what this is about. And he talks about, oh, well, we're going to lose or eliminate, rather, hundreds of thousands of jobs. Again, read up on the Green New Deal. It creates millions of jobs with an M, millions. So we may lose some jobs, dirty jobs, but we will be creating millions of new jobs, hence the name Green New Deal. Now, he also says that she is catering to elites in Malibu and Manhattan, but this is nothing more than projection, obviously, because he's catering to the elites that bankroll Turning Point USA, which may be why his organization publishes propaganda puff pieces like this, 10 Ways Fossil Fuels Improve Our Daily Lives. Well, I'll do you one better, Charlie. Here's my list as to why we should stop excessively pumping fossil fuels into the atmosphere. And my list just has one bullet point. If we don't stop, we're all going to go extinct. But he doesn't know what the Green New Deal is or what it does, so he just has to straw man and fill in what he thinks it is, and then argue based on the straw man that he created. And this is what conservatives do all the time. It's not just Charlie Kirk, to be fair. Dave Rubin does this. They'll kind of go on Fox News, and they'll be asked about something, and then they won't know, clearly, because they're showing how ignorant they are because they can't cite any specifics, and they'll just espouse these vague, you know, general takes on socialists and say oh well they want to eliminate jobs in this industry yada 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 look if you're going to argue based on something then why don't you actually dive into the policy specifics and tell us why you're against it specifically saying that it's going to eliminate hundreds of thousands of jobs that's not a very persuasive criticism given that the green new deal will create millions of jobs now one last quote i want to get to he says and with alexandria ocasio-cortez she's constantly wrong but never in doubt that sounds like someone that we just heard speak not too long ago. <laughs> Charlie Kirk is a projection machine because that's what he's doing. He talks about things he knows nothing about. Specifically, he'll talk about the Green New Deal when he demonstrated that he doesn't know nothing about it. It's not about shifting the burden of climate change to the working class, as he implied. It's about making sure that we reinvent our economy and invest in clean, renewable technology. Yes, industries will die off, jobs will be lost, but the point of having a Green New Deal is to replace those jobs with industries that actually won't get us all killed and make the planet an uninhabitable nightmare.
Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. The next episode will be a little bit longer, I'm assuming, because then we'll have a little bit more time to talk about the issue. So thank you all so much for watching and tuning in. A special shout out to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors for helping the show to not just survive but thrive as well. And thank you to you for just watching on YouTube and as well as, uh, or and also additionally, rather, uh, I can't end the show without thanking all of our iTunes and SoundCloud listeners. So thank you all so much. I will see you next week. Take care. I'm Mike Figueredo. This has been the Humanist Report.